All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 31 for October 2021. Play Ball, Part 2. Wes Fisler, Lon Knight, Harry Luff, and Orator Schaefer. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and volunteer podcaster. Round the bases with me for the next 60 minutes or so in Play Ball Part 2 to learn about four pioneers of America's pastime. Wes the Icicle Fissler, who scored the first run in Major League history, but lay in an unmarked grave at Laurel Hill for more than 90 years. Lon Knight, who threw the first pitch in Major League history, yet still has an unmarked grave. Harry Luff, who was an awful human being, he nonetheless played eight positions for six different teams in four major leagues before finally doing some jail time. And Orator Schaefer, a man confined to right field because of his constant chatter, but who still holds the Major League record for the most outfield assists more than 140 years after setting it. Now, I had originally planned to cover two other baseball pioneers, Orator Schaefer's brother, Zachary Taylor Schaefer, and a stage actor turned umpire, George Barnum. I don't have enough time. I will save them for a future podcast. So I do hope you enjoy this end of summer session on baseball from All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. The first known American baseball club was the Gothams of New York, formed sometime in the 1830s. In 1845, a team called the Knickerbockers was formed by breakaways from the Gothams. And on 10 September of that year, the New York Daily News wrote about the game of baseball for the first time. Two weeks later, the Knickerbockers drew up the earliest set of rules that still survives. On 11 October 1845, the New York Morning News and True Sun newspapers reported the game between a club from Brooklyn and one from Manhattan. And 10 days later, the first box score appeared in the Morning News. 
1857, there were enough baseball teams in the New York, New Jersey area to form a 16-team league. It called itself the National Association of Baseball Players, the NABBP, baseball being two words. This was recognized as the first organization governing American baseball. The rules called for nine-inning games, nine-man teams, 90 feet between the bases. Players did not wear gloves, pitches came underhand, and a batter could be put out when a fielder either caught the ball on the fly or the first bounce. The league also voted unanimously to bar any club, quote, composed of one or more colored persons, end quote. The first documented color line in baseball, which lasted until 1947. Early baseball appealed mostly to Irish and German urban immigrants who were unfamiliar with cricket. Many of the first baseball clubs emerged from working in middle-class urban communities rather than in upper-crust English immigrant communities where cricket was generally preferred. I covered the history of cricket in Philadelphia in podcast number 25, Some Worcester Men You May Not Know. Unlike their English counterparts, German and Irish immigrants were eager to Americanize and to adopt the new sport. Now, for the first half of the 19th century, baseball playing had actually been prohibited in Quaker Philadelphia. Many clubs were still formed and played in the open, though. And when these community laws relaxed in 1857, more local teams formed openly, including the Olympics, the Excelsiors, the Athletics, the Continentals, and the Nonpareils. A popular playing field was Kamax Woods at 17th and Columbia. By 5 July 1860, there were 12 active baseball clubs in the city of Philadelphia. On Monday, 24 September 1860, the Excelsiors of Brooklyn came to Philadelphia to play a team from the Philadelphia area. The Excelsiors, founded in 1854, were the first team to travel outside of New York to play other teams. They had just started wearing a new type of headgear, a snug-fitting cap that had a front brim and a button on top. This style was soon adopted by most other players. One of the players on the Philadelphia Nine that day was Weston Dixon Fissler, a 19-year-old member of the Equity Club, which had been founded in April. Wes had been born in Camden, New Jersey in 1843. He was the son of Lorenzo Fissler, who served five terms as mayor of Camden, and the older brother of Lorenzo Fissler, Jr., 1841 to 1918. He was a globetrotting photographer who made his name in Shanghai. Wes Fissler would become one of the pioneers of professional baseball, with a career that extended to the centennial season of 1876. Wes was a quiet, well-mannered, well-dressed young man who had been educated in private schools. He batted and threw right-handed, and he played the infield, usually first and second base, with occasional forays to the outfield later in his career. He never griped about umpires' bad calls or misplays by his teammates. His nickname was The Icicle. In an early 20th century interview, he said, 
I was a cool sort of player and never saw the necessity of getting all mussed up and covered with dirt. I never got excited about anything. West continued playing baseball locally while many players went off to war. The first organized baseball game of the Civil War took place on 2 July 1861 when a team from the 71st New York Regiment defeated the Washington Nationals Amateur Club 41-13 in a park across from the White House. Later that month, the regiment suffered heavy casualties at the first Battle of Bull Run, losing many of its best athletes. The teams arranged a rematch in early 1862. Now the Nationals defeated the decimated New Yorkers 28-13. to Many soldiers learned the game. They took it home with them after Appomattox. Even the Confederates took this Yankee game to heart. After the Civil War, West Fisler played from 1866 to 1870 with the Philadelphia Athletics. One of his teammates was Al Reach, whom I talked about at length in an earlier podcast, number seven. He's interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. In 1866, the national magazine Harper's Weekly chronicled a match between the Athletics, which had won 23 games, and Atlantic of Brooklyn, which had won 17 games for the baseball championship of 1866. Brooklyn won the match. The Athletic singular was the best team in the league in both 1867, when it went 44-3, and 1868, when it went 47-3. and The next year, 1869, was the year when nobody could touch the Cincinnati Red Stockings, which went 57 and 0. In 1871, several teams decided to separate from the NABBP and become professionals. They formed the National Association of Professional Baseball Players, also known as the National Association. This league expanded from its New York roots. It started with the Boston Red Stockings, the Chicago White Stockings, the Cleveland Forest Cities, the Fort Wayne Kekiangas, the New York Mutuals, the Philadelphia Athletic, the Rockford Forest Cities, the Troy Haymakers, and the Washington Olympics. The Kekiangas and Rockford Forest Cities were gone before the season ended. The Athletic lasted all five years of the league's existence, and Philadelphia even managed to field two more teams in the league. The White Stocking, sometimes called the Pearls or the Phillies, from 1873 to 1875, and the Centennials, who played only in the 1875 season. By the time the National Association started, Wes Fisler was one of the ten oldest players in the league, but he played all five years of the league's existence at a reported annual salary of $1,500 per year. At the end of the 1871 season, there were playoffs for the championship. The Great Chicago Fire of 8 October had destroyed the Chicago White Stockings ballpark and the homes of most of its players. The White Sox were desperate for cash and agreed to play the athletics at the neutral union grounds in Brooklyn on 30 October. Fissler got three hits and scored two runs in a 4-1 to one victory over Chicago in a game that lasted one hour, 38 minutes. The Athletics were crowned as the champions of baseball. 
After the 1871 season, the Boston Red Stockings dominated the league for the next four years under the management of Harry Wright, whom I also talked about in an earlier podcast as he is buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. The Philadelphia Athletics and the Philadelphia White Stockings shared a baseball field called Jefferson Park. It was on a large block bounded by Jefferson Street, 25th Street, Master Street, and 27th Street. Its seating capacity was about 5,000. Baseball had been played there since 1864. After the ball field fell into disuse after the 1876 season, the city cut 26th Street through the land, but the Athletics reclaimed the western half of the Jefferson lot in 1882, and they played there until 1890. The ballpark site is currently occupied by the Daniel Boone Public School at 1435 North 26th and the Athletic Recreation Center and its ball fields. There is a blue sign there telling of its history. A Fistler was with the athletics team in 1874 when it traveled to Europe with the Boston team on a world tour. The game of baseball was not well received during the tour, and the tour was not financially successful. Both clubs combined for a total loss of about $2,500. This tour affected each team's profit margin for the 1874 season. Boston broke even. Philadelphia only made about $800. Now, sports uniforms were not standardized in those times. Fissler often played while wearing a dress hat, shirt cuffs, choker collar, and a necktie. He earned the nickname the Dandy of the Diamond. Even on the hottest days when other players were drenched in sweat, the icicle's collar never wilted. Once a pitcher named Hugh One-Arm Daly put Fissler's plug hat out of commission forever, by sending one of his cannonball shots clean through its shiny fore and aft. In January 1876, the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs, later simply known as the National League, was established after the National Association proved ineffective. The Athletic Club of Philadelphia, which was expelled after 1876, with its infielder Wes Fissler, was one of the original teams. Along with the Chicago White Stockings, who are now the Chicago Cubs, the Boston Red Stockings, who were later the Boston, then the Milwaukee, and then the Atlanta Braves. So the Boston Red Stockings are not the precursor to the Boston Red Sox. The Hartford Dark Blues, which folded after 1877. The New York Mutuals, which were expelled after 1876. The St. Louis Brown Stockings, folded after 1877. Cincinnati Red, disbanded after 1879. And Louisville Grays, which folded after 1877 when four players were banned for gambling. The schedule called for the season to start on Saturday, 22 April, 1876, three weeks before the Centennial International Exhibition opened in Fairmount Park. Every game but one was rained out. At Jefferson Street Park, Boston beat Philadelphia 6-5. 18 errors were committed. The first run of the game by the home team And some people say the first run ever scored in the National League was by Wes Fissler. 
99 years later, on 4 May 1975, at 12.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time in San Francisco's Candlestick Park, Houston's Bob Watson was knocked in from second base by Dave Concepcion, scoring the one millionth run in National League history. The Associated Press article mentioned that, quote, Wes Fisler of Philadelphia started it all 99 years and 12 days ago, end quote. West played in the National Association for five seasons and the National League for just one season. Despite his short stature, he was five foot six and slight build, 137 pounds. His lifetime batting average was 316 over his six professional seasons. He retired after the 1876 season with 414 career hits, two career home runs, and 189 RBIs in 273 games. His best year was 1872 when he hit 348. In his career, Fissler played 124 games at first base, 120 games at second base, 35 games at outfield, and one at shortstop. Some consider him the premier first baseman of his day. In 1871, his fielding mark at first base in these pre-glove days was 961. This is far above the league average of 933. Tim Murnane, writing in Sporting Life on 24 March 1886, said he was, quote, one of the most graceful players that ever handled a ball. When he retired from baseball, Wes Fisler returned to Camden. He lived at 511 Federal Street and kept up his interest in dressing well, working in gentlemen's furnishings across the river in Philadelphia. Later, he moved to Philadelphia, where he lived in a rooming house at 2134 Park Avenue. Fisler never married. Up to his time of death, he could be seen at every home game played at Scheib Park in a special seat in the left field corner of the grandstand. Weston Dixon Fissler passed away Christmas Day 1922 in Philadelphia at the age of 81. West was buried in South Laurel Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia, Section 16, Lot 251, and his plot remained unmarked for the next 95 years. On 18 November 2017, he received his headstone. Unfortunately, it does not mention him being the icicle. Now, when I mentioned the first game ever played in the National League on 22 April 1876, I told you the first run was scored by Wes Fisler of the Philadelphia Athletic. The pitcher for the Athletic that day, and therefore the first man ever to throw a pitch in the National League, was Alonzo Lon Knight. He'd been orphaned at age seven and placed at Girard College. By the time he started playing baseball seriously in 1870 at age 17, he was going simply by the name Lon Knight. I wouldn't call Knight the Shohei Otani of the 1870s, but he spent time both on the mound and in right field during his split seven-year career, not to mention two years as a manager. 
And then he went on to umpire for several years in several different leagues, gaining respect from the players and the sports reporters. Lon Knight's professional career, starting with the Philadelphia Athletics, when they were still part of the National Association in 1875. Serving solely as a pitcher, he started 13 of the 77 games played that year by the Athletics, winning six and losing five with an ERA of 2.27. His batting average as a pitcher was a paltry 128. The team batting leader that year was Cap Anson at 325. Cap is now in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, when the National League started in 1876, the Athletics got off to a bad start. They finished the season mired in seventh with a 14-45 and record. Knight did double duty. He pitched in 34 games with a 10-22 and record, but an ERA of 2.62. This tells you about the dead ball era. He was hitting in 55 games with 60 hits in 240 at-bats, an even 250 batting average. But he did throw that first pitch. The Athletics got booted from the National League after the 1876 season for refusing to go on a late-season road trip. Lon disappeared from baseball for the next three seasons. He showed up with the Wooster Ruby Legs in the 1880 season. The National League had admitted the Ruby Legs from the National Association, which was then a minor league. They were to replace the failed Syracuse Stars. Wooster had been the first professional team to visit Cuba before the season started. On 21 May 1880, Lon was playing right field at Riverside Park in Albany, New York, when Lipman Emanuel Lip Pike, a.k.a. the Iron Batter, uh, he's now recognized as the first Jewish professional baseball player. Anyway, Lip hit a ball over the fence into the river. There were no ground rules stating that a ball hit over the fence was an automatic home run, so Knight pursued the ball in a boat but he eventually gave up. A few weeks later, on 12 June 1880, with umpire Foghorn Bradley calling the game, the Ruby League's ace, Lee Richmond, tossed the first perfect game in Major League history. Knight played in 49 of the Ruby League's 83 games, batting 239, but his pitching days were essentially over. Lou spent the next two seasons in the National League with the Detroit Wolverines. This was a startup team that was cobbled together from the remnants of the defunct Cincinnati Reds. They went 41 and 43 in 1881. Lon played 83 of their games and batted 271. They were 42 and 41 in 1882. Lon played in all of their games and batted 207. He returned to Philadelphia and the Athletics for the 1883 season. Now he was player-manager. The Athletics were now part of another professional league, the American Association, along with the Baltimore Orioles, Cincinnati Red Stockings, the Eclipse of Louisville, the Pittsburgh Alleghenies, and the St. Louis Brown Stockings. And the Athletics were on their way to the 1883 American Association pennant. On 30 July 1883, Lon Knight, who had thrown the first pitch in Major League Baseball, made 
MLB history yet again at the Jefferson Street grounds, this time against the Pittsburgh Alleghenies. An estimated crowd of 6,000 watched Philadelphia stomp Pittsburgh 17-4. Lon had five of his team's 23 hits. But the way he got them was unique to baseball at that time. With one out in the first inning, Knight singled to center and drove in a run. In the top of the third, Knight doubled to right field, advanced to third on a wild pitch, and came home when O'Brien tripled. In the top of the sixth, two A's reached base. Knight followed with a hit to center field for three bases, and then he scored on a sacrifice fly. The top of the eighth started with a single, but the runner got to trot home on, quote, Knight's terrific line hit to extreme left center for a home run, end quote. Alonzo Knight had just become the first player in Major League history to hit for a natural cycle. In order, a single, double, triple, and home run. This is one of only three home runs that Lon hit in his career. And this natural cycle has occurred only 15 times in the 145 years of professional baseball. Most recently, when Gary Matthews Jr. of the Texas Rangers did it in 2006 against the Detroit Tigers. Oh, and the fifth time that Knight batted that day, he banged out another double. One year to the day after hitting for the cycle, Knight went 6-for-6. In Knight's second year of managing the Athletics, they fell to the middle of the pack, seventh place out of 13 teams, despite a respectable 61-46 and record for a 570 winning percentage. Lon played in every game and batted 210. He even pitched twice for 14 innings, but had a bloated ERA of 9.00. Lon left the Athletics during the 1885 season and headed to the Providence Grays of the National League, which had won the first World Series over the New York Metropolitans of the American Association the previous fall. He played for 25 games, but age was catching up with him, and he only batted 160. He retired as a full-time player at the end of the season, although he is listed as playing with a minor league team in Lowell, Massachusetts in 1877 and 1878. Lon umpired one game in the National League in 1876, and then he became a regular umpire in the American Association in 1887 and then again in the National League in 1888 and 1889, and in the Players League during its sole season, 1890. In 1891, he somehow ended up umpiring for a game between the Sioux City Huskers and the Denver Grizzlies. At one point after a disputed call, the Denver pitcher kicked Knight in the leg. Knight whirled and immediately ejected the player and his manager and imposed a $25 fine to each. The article I found in the Sioux City Journal from 9 August 1891 took Knight's side in the dust-up. In 1892, Knight was umpiring in Portland, Oregon, and an article in the Tacoma Daily Ledger, dated 16 May 1892, stated, quote, Knight's umpiring in this city was in every game up to the standard, and in some of them better than ordinary. 
Two or three of his decisions in the opening games with Seattle call forth a storm of criticism, and yet in every instance but one, he was correct. Two references I used said that after Knight umpired his last game, he became a drummer. I find no confirmation of this, either through the Internet or through Tom Lord's online discography. In fact, I find almost nothing about him in the newspapers after 1900. Now, each time another member of the 1876 athletic team died, Lon would get a mention in the obituary or serve as a pallbearer. One glorious exception to this anonymity is a Universal Service News Syndicate story out of New York City, dated 2 February 1925. It was celebrating the golden anniversary of the founding of the National League. Six players who took place in that inaugural season were honored at the Broadway Central Hotel, including Lon Knight of the Philadelphia Athletics, the man who threw the first pitch in Major League Baseball, the man who was in right field when the first perfect game was pitched, and the first man to hit for the natural cycle in professional baseball history. Lon was another lifelong bachelor. The 1880 census shows him living with his mother's brother, Samuel Pugh, in the 600 block of North 10th Street. His occupation is listed as paper hanger. In 1895, he was a clerk, and in 1900, an instructor. But by 1910, he was listed as a highway inspector. In 1930, he had moved to an apartment at 931 Spring Garden, and at age 76 was still a highway inspector. Lon Knight died on Saturday, 23 April 1932, while preparing his breakfast. He was 78 years old. All of the obituaries said the cause was inhaling cooking fumes, and none of them mentioned any survivors. His death certificate left the cause of death as pending an inquest. Alonzo Knight was buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section H, lot 6364, close to his mother and father, in a lot owned by his uncle Samuel Pugh, who had died in 1899. But nearly 90 years later, Lon Knight's grave remains unmarked. I want to tell you right off the bat that this information is mostly from an essay titled Harry Luff. It was written and published by Bill Lamb at Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, at their website. The biography was accompanied by 48 footnotes. It was reviewed by Rory Costello and Joel Barnhart, and it was fact-checked by Chris Rainey. I did get permission from Mr. Lamb to use his material as a basis for this podcast. He told me that he hoped it would get the story of Harry Luff out there to more people. Calling Harry Luff's life and career checkered would probably generate a hearty belly laugh from those who knew him. From a baseball perspective, he was a moderately successful hitter. He played eight different positions he didn't catch with six different teams in four different major leagues during a rather prolonged career. But he was a drinker, he was a brawler, he was a thief, 
He was a wife beater, and he came very close to being tried for murder when a young girlfriend of his died under suspicious circumstances. Henry Thomas Luff was born in Philadelphia in September 1852 to a British immigrant father, Walter, and Irish immigrant mother, Elizabeth. The family moved to Canada for a few years when he was a baby, but they were back in Philadelphia by 1860. Walter was an iron molder, but he got involved in real estate and apparently did very well. He was able to send young Harry to the Polytechnic College of Pennsylvania. This was an engineering school located at the corner of Market Street and West Penn Square, which had been founded in 1853. Harry entered the college in 1870 and graduated three years later. He was a member of Sigma Chi, and when he graduated, he spent a year in the office of the first assistant engineer of the Pittsburgh, McKeesport, and Yachtgeny Railroad, a division of the Pittsburgh and Lake Erie Railroad Company. He served there as an inspector of masonry. He then spent five years engaged at tunneling, grading, and bridge building for the Schuylkill Valley East Side Railroad. At age 21, the Philadelphia City Directory listed Harry T. Luff as a civil engineer. Harry had grown to be a lanky 5 feet 11 inches, weighing 175 pounds. He played baseball with local sandlot teams. He began his professional career in the National Association when he signed with the Elm City Club of New Haven. They were awful, but not the most awful. Now, the Boston Red Sox were running away to the title. They had a 71-8 and record. New Haven finished eighth with a record of 7-40 and and a winning percentage of 149. They were not the worst team in the league. The Washington Nationals, the St. Louis Red Stockings, the Philadelphia Centennials, the Brooklyn Atlantics, and the Keokuk Westerns all finished with a lower winning percentage than 149. Obviously, they only lasted for one season. Now, Harry batted a respectable 271 in 166 at-bats, and he led the club with 15 extra base hits and 18 RBIs in his 38 games. He even did some pitching. He hurled in 10 games. He went 1-6, and six, but his ERA was respectable at 3.28. At the hot corner, he was a dud. Even in those pre-glove days, his 132 chances turned into 41 errors. Fielding percentage, 689. His fielding from the mound was only a little less atrocious. In 30 chances, he had 7 putouts, 15 assists, and 8 errors. In 30 chances. Harry did not finish the season with the Elms. When the team crossed into Canada to play an exhibition game in London, Ontario in mid-September, Harry and his roommate Billy Gear were seen checking out of the upscale Tecumseh Hotel with overstuffed suitcases just before the tenant of the room next to theirs reported a missing fur coat and a gold watch and several other items. Now, New Haven police were notified. They searched the boarding house room that was shared by Luff and Gear, and they found those missing items as well as a revolver, which had been reported as stolen. 
The boys were found at a local saloon and arrested. Charges were dropped when witnesses did not want to travel from Canada to testify, but Luff and Gear were fired by the New Haven Club. This would not be their last adventure together. Harry found work with the 1876 Memphis Reds, an independent professional team which played all comers. Luff again played third base and pitched. In 1877, he headed to the Rochester Flower Cities. Rochester was the flower capital of the country. And this was in the non-major international league for 18 games in the infield and the outfield and on the mound. 1878 found him splitting his time between the Pittsburgh Allegheny of the International Association and the independent Cleveland Forest City. A local newspaper described him as, quote, a pleasant, good-natured fellow, and he attracts the attention of the ladies more than any other member of the club, end quote. For the next two seasons, Harry stayed in Philadelphia with administrative jobs away from baseball, although he did spend time working out with the Philadelphia Athletic. He appeared in a few box scores. But he also served as a census taker in 1880 and was being touted as a potential candidate for the Pennsylvania State Legislature. Any political hopes were dashed in September 1881 when Luff became the target of official inquiry in the suspicious death of a 20-year-old Philadelphia woman named Lydia Apker, whom Luff had been, quote, paying attention to for some time, end quote, according to newspapers. City records show they lived only a block or so from each other on Passyunk. A coroner's jury said the deceased, quote, came to her death from congestion of the brain, the result of criminal malpractice at the hands of Harry Luff, end quote. Also named as accessories after the fact were physician Edward F. Guth, 1841 to 1913. Guth had been a Civil War surgeon who served in Philadelphia hospitals and he treated victims of Gettysburg in 1863. He's buried at Laurel Hill in Section Z, in Lot 263. Also named as druggist George W. Knight. Both Knight and Guth were exonerated within days and Harry Luff skipped town. Lydia was buried in the philanthropic burial grounds in South Philadelphia. Harry was located and arrested and brought back to Philly, but he was released on a writ of habeas corpus when a police court judge ruled there was nothing against him to sustain a conviction. Harry was again a free man. I can prove nothing more than a hundred years later, but there's a combination of a lot of phrases there, such as physician, druggist, a pretty 20-year-old, criminal malpractice. It all sounds very suspicious. Harry quickly signed with the Providence Grays of the National League, but he was cut before the season started. He had a three-game audition with the Detroit Wolverines, where he would have joined Alonzo Knight, But his stone hands gave him six errors at second base during a three-game tryout, and he was again released. His next stop was the Cincinnati Reds of the Major League American Association. Here he was shifted to first base to try and limit the damage caused by his fielding. 
but his bat shriveled too. He only hit 233 at 28 games. He also refused to sign the contract that he had verbally agreed to before joining the club. Turns out he was in secret negotiations with the Buffalo Bisons of the National League. The Bisons are now a triple-A East affiliate of the Toronto Blue Jays, but they are the only remaining team that was major league in the 19th century and is now a minor league team. Well, Huff's deal with the Bisons apparently fell through, as he is not listed in any of their rosters. He appealed to the Reds for a second chance, and he was reinstated. Six weeks later, he received a $5 fine from the Reds' manager for blowing an easy catch. Luff resigned from the club and returned to Philadelphia again, purportedly to join an old classmate in a civil engineering firm. But the following spring, there he was with the Brooklyn Grays of the Minor League Interstate Association. He lasted until July. His next stop, rather oddly, was the pennant-contending Louisville Eclipse of the American Association. In six games, he stank up the place by going 4-for-23 and committed seven errors between the outfield and first base. And, to top it off, he missed a game due to drinking, and he got into a fight with a local policeman. He was convicted of assault with a $10 fine, but again, no jail time. He was released from the eclipse for, quote, drunkenness and disgraceful conduct, end quote. After his release from Louisville, no National League or American Association club would touch him. His nomadic nature led him to join an upstart organization just forming called the Union Association. Their season started with eight teams, the Altoona Mountain Cities, the Baltimore Monumentals, the Boston Reds, Chicago Browns, Cincinnati Outlaw Reds, Philadelphia Keystones, St. Louis Maroons, and Washington Nationals. His hometown connections and friendship with the manager landed him at second base for the Philadelphia Keystones. On opening day, his double play partner at shortstop was Billy Gear, his old partner in crime. Now, Harry managed to stay sober for the first few weeks of the season, but a trip to Cincinnati to play the Outlaw Reds triggered something in him. Heavily intoxicated, he boarded a horse-drawn streetcar, raised hell, threatened the conductor with a knife, and ended up in jail. He was released on bond, but then skipped his court date and was rearrested. He paid his $25 fine, and his 30-day sentence was suspended. But the Keystones let him go. Never one to give up. Harry now joined the Kansas City Cowboys, a mid-season replacement team for the Altoona Mountain Cities, which had folded. He lasted five games. He went one for 20 at the plate and committed 12 errors in five games. His major league career was over. In parts of four seasons with six different major league clubs, he played 106 games with a lifetime average of 247, with 27 extra base hits and 27 RBIs. He also committed 126 errors, more than one per game. 
Now, back home in Philadelphia in February 1885, Harry married Octomenia Minnie Cunningham, an already pregnant 20-year-old. They would have seven children over the next nine years. He must have been loaded with charm because soon a Memphis newspaper was reporting that, quote, Harry Luff of the Old Reds has married and settled down and now wants a position with some good club as a third baseman or fielder, end quote. He got his wish and was offered a contract by the Augusta Browns of the Southern League. He started the season as their first baseman, but seems to have disappeared by early May. A Cleveland newspaper reported, quote, Jack Leary and Harry Luff are playing down in Georgia with the Augusta team. Since their debut there, several saloons have run out of liquor, end quote. When he came back to Philadelphia, he packed up his family and moved to Pottsville, where his last known baseball engagement was with a semi-pro team there. He was back in Philadelphia in 1889 as a sub-officer with the Philadelphia Fire Department, and his life did not improve. On 18 September 1891, Luff appeared before Magistrate John F. Pohl on a charge of cruelty and neglect of his wife and children. Pohl declared, quote, I think you are the worst man in the world without exception. I know you and know you well. You have beaten your wife, neglected your family, blackened the eyes of your sister, blackguarded your father who has kept you for years and done everything else you could to be in keeping with your habitual drunkenness. You have tried to get rid of your wife who is a good woman. And I think it is about time the community was rid of a beast like you. End quote. Harry was sentenced to one year in the Philadelphia House of Corrections. Things did not go any better after his release from prison. Minnie took ill and died of pneumonia in 1895. She was 30 years old. A few months later, their youngest child, Frank, died. In April 1904, Harry, age 52, took 41-year-old Elvira George as his second wife. His father died the next year. By the 1910 census, Harry was working as a clerk at a government office and living in a row house near North 56th Street and Girard. In 1916, his sister Sarah Luff Muntz died of nephritis. Harry followed on 11 October 1916, dying at Philadelphia General Hospital of Cardiovascular Disease. Left hemiplegia is noted on his death certificate. His passing went unnoticed in the Philadelphia newspapers. Harry was interred in the family plot, Section Z, plots 308 to 310. He has been there for 105 years without a marker. I cannot find a photo of Harry Luff anywhere online. As I mentioned before, the first official professional baseball league was formed 150 years ago in March of 1871. It's called the National Association of Professional Baseball Players. It lasted for five years. I want you to try and realize these men didn't think they were doing anything extraordinary at the time. They just liked to play baseball and they wanted to get some money for it. 
They liked it so much that they were willing to hop from city to city in order to meet their goals. They had absolutely no idea that arguments would eventually arise about when the major leagues actually started and which of these several leagues would be thought of as major league teams a century or more later. Now, in 1969, 100 years after the first professional team was formed, the Special Baseball Records Committee of Major League Baseball officially recognized six major leagues, the National League and the American League, of course, along with an American League precursor, the American Association, which ran from 1882 to 1891. The Union Association, which lasted for one year only, 1884. The Players League, also a one-year wonder, but in 1890. And the Federal League, a competing third major league, which ran from 1914-1915. A bone of contention was the National League precursor, the National Association of Professional Baseball Players. Major League Baseball does not recognize its statistics. However, these statistics are included with those of other major leagues by some baseball reference websites, such as RetroSheet. The arguments continue today. Just in December of 2020, Major League Baseball announced its recognition of seven leagues within Negro League Baseball as major leagues And earlier in 2021, baseball reference website, baseballreference.com, began to include statistics from those seven Negro League teams into their major league statistics. This shook up a lot of baseball history. So the National Association may or may not be recognized one of these days. George W. Schaefer, born in Philadelphia in 1851, was one of those early pioneers. Unfortunately for researchers, you can find information on him under four different spellings. Schaefer, S-H-A-F-F-E-R, Schaefer, S-H-A-F-E-R, Schaefer, S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R, and Schaefer, S-C-H-A-E-F-F-E-R. I will stick with Schaefer, the name on his death certificate. His father was John, born in 1826. His mother was Elizabeth, born in 1832. They were married in 1849, but I can find nothing else about his family. Despite them having enough money to purchase a mausoleum in the Franconia section of West Laurel Hill Cemetery, this is one of the high-class neighborhoods, along with Ashland, In its own way, it's sort of equivalent to Laurel Hill Cemetery's Millionaire's Row. Now, Schaefer's first appearance in the National Association was with the Hartford Dark Blues, which was Mark Twain's favorite team. Schaefer was added to the 1874 team. He played nine games. He batted only 229, but he hit one of the team's two home runs that season. The Dark Blues lasted only two seasons of the National Association before they joined the National League. Their sidearm fireballer Bill Cherokee Fisher was the first professional baseballer to strike out the side. And in 1876, they were the victims of the first triple play and the first team to have a no-hitter thrown against them. Their shortstop, Tommy Barlow, is a candidate for the inventor of the bunt. 
Now, there's a story that has nothing to do with Schaefer about the dark blues. It's worth repeating. Hartford resident Mark Twain was a huge baseball fan. He attended a lot of local games, even kept notes in his personal stationery. While attending a game against the Brooklyn Atlantics, Twain's umbrella went missing. In response to the suspected theft, Twain published a reward in the Hartford Daily Courant on 20 May 1875. $205 reward. At the great baseball match on Tuesday, while I engaged in harrying, a small boy walked off with an English-made brown silk umbrella, all in caps, belonging to me, and forgot to bring it back. I will pay $5 for the return of the umbrella in good condition to my house on Farmington Avenue. I do not want the boy in an active state, but will pay $200 for his remains. Signed, Samuel L. Clemens. This humorous advertisement led to a morbid prank. A local medical student left one of his case studies, the corpse of a young boy, on Twain's front porch, along with a note claiming the reward. A nervous Twain thought he might be suspected as accessory to murder until the janitor of the medical college came to claim the body and clear the author. Back to Schaefer. He played one game in late 1874 with the New York Mutuals and then moved to the Philadelphia White Stockings for the 1875 season where he played 19 games hitting 243. The Whites were finishing their three-year run in the National Association at the familiar Jefferson Field. Schaefer had earned the nickname Orator by now. Alfred Henry Spink, founder of the Sporting News, said he gained the name because he, quote, was a great stickler for his rights and talked to himself when not talking to the umpire, end quote. He also talked to his teammates endlessly, so much so that one writer suggested that despite being a decent third baseman, he was isolated to right field so no one had to hear his chatter. Orator took the centennial year off from professional baseball. He reemerged in the National League with the 1877 Louisville Grays in their second and final year of existence. The Grays were unraveled by Major League Baseball's first gambling scandal. They were in first place in August 1877, but suddenly lost seven games and tied one against the Boston Red Stockings and Hartford Dark Blues. Boston ended up winning the pennant seven games ahead of the second-place Grays. Four of the Grays were expelled from baseball. Schaefer was not implicated. In fact, in 61 games, he hit a decent 278 with three home runs. In right field, he had 121 putouts and an impressive 21 assists, but he also committed 28 errors with a fielding percentage of 835 in those pre-glove days. It was 1878 with the Indianapolis Blues in their only National League season when Orator became a star. Despite the team's fifth-place finish in a six-team league, Schaefer batted 338 with a slugging percentage of 455 in 63 games. He finished sixth in the batting race, third in on-base percentage, and third in slugging percentage. But the Blues folded 
at the end of the season. Orator signed with Cap Anson's Chicago White Stockings for the 1879 season, but he had apparently left some unpaid debts behind him in Indianapolis. When the White Stockings went to Indy to play an exhibition game in June 1879, the local sheriff was waiting for him. After the game, Schaefer and his teammate Frank Sylvester Silver Flint, also sought by the local law, escaped the ballpark in a horse-drawn carriage. Their manager, future Hall of Famer Hansen, was hauled to jail in their stead. Schaefer batted 304 for Chicago that season, and he set a career at league high by getting 50 assists from the outfield. Believe it or not, 142 years later, this is still the major league record, 50 assists from the outfield. But before you marvel at his impeccable fielding, realize that he committed 37 errors that year, and he had a fielding percentage of 801. Orator got some stability for the next three years with the Cleveland Blues as their regular right fielder. The Blues finished third, seventh, and fifth in that three-year span. Orator hit 246 in their 252 games. Now, according to the blog, Great Names in Baseball, Orator was mentioned in a publication called Who's Who Among Baseballists, 1883. I find no record of this anywhere online. This is a long quote. Cleveland teammates frequently remark that Schaefer loves to talk about his own exploits, but more so he loves to talk about the exploits of his many children from many mothers. Cleveland hurler George Bradley added that Schaefer once began every statement for two hours, my illegitimate child this and my illegitimate child that. League rumors abound that Schaefer's gonads are actually sterile and the claims are empty posturing. Orator Schaefer, ne'er indeed of social lubricants, partakes in spirits nonetheless, frequently to his own detriment. In a well-known instance, he challenged diminutive second baseman Joe Quest to a drinking contest before a doubleheader against the Cincinnati Reds. The contest score remains unclear, but the outcome does not. Quest, weary of Schaefer's rambling tongue, ended the contest by bludgeoning the orator with a half-empty bottle, spraying shards and brown liquor everywhere within 20 feet of home plate where the contest was occurring. End quote. I am unable to verify this event independently. There is, however, no doubt about an article from the Detroit Free Press dated 7 May 1905, or a baseball fan spun this tale. Quote, It was my great delight when I was a boy to get out as near the right field fence as possible and listen to Orator Schaefer talk to himself. His self-addressed speeches after he had dropped a liner or made a wild throw to a base or misjudged a fly ball were lurid enough. But it was after he struck out in the inning before that the air in right field turned positively blue. After one particularly painful strikeout, he headed back to right field where the fellow telling the story was concealed. Quote, I was hunched down by the fence. He didn't see me. Schaefer, he said. Schaefer, I fine you $50. Schaefer, you're suspended for the season. Schaefer, you dot-gasted old no good. Schaefer, you, you white-livered old has-been. 
I can't remember at all, but he kept up a running fire of abusive talk to himself until the side was out. In 1883, Schaefer moved to the Buffalo Bisons. He played 95 games and hit 292. In 1884, at age 32, Schaefer joined the St. Louis Maroons of the Union Association. The Maroons beat up on everyone, starting the season by going 20 and 0 and finishing with a record of 94 and 19. Their closest rival, the Cincinnati Outlaw Reds, finished 21 games behind them. Orator hit a career high of 360 in 106 games with the team, including a league-leading 40 doubles and 10 triples. His fielding percentage improved to 870 with only 20 errors. When the Maroons were promoted to the National League in 1885, Schaefer stayed with them, but his productivity plummeted. His batting average was now a sickly 195. The next year, Schaefer was back in Philadelphia, this time with the American Association Athletics. He hit a respectable 268 in the 21 games he played. Not wanting to quit just yet, Schaefer moved in the minors, first with the Lincoln Tree Planters of the Western League, where he was suspended in September for punching an umpire in the face. Yes, I do have the newspaper article to verify that. The next year, he found a spot with the Western Association's Des Moines Prohibitionists, where he led the league with a 338 batting average. In 1889, he was a captain of the Detroit Wolverines, who were now out of the National League and in the International League. Finally, in 1890, at age 38, the second oldest player in the league, He was back in the majors with the American Association Philadelphia Athletics. He played 100 games, he batted 282, and his fielding percentage was a career-high 958. But the Athletics finished in 8th place, 34 games behind the league-leading Louisville Colonels, but they were 11.5 games ahead of the Brooklyn Gladiators. Maybe Orator was happy. He was now playing with his kid brother, Zachary Taylor Schaefer, 15 years his junior. According to Sporting Life, Schaefer was, quote, for years considered the best man in his position, end quote. And in 2001, statistician Bill James ranked Orator Schaefer as the 99th greatest right fielder of all time. I find no record about Orator marrying or having children. Find a Grave gives him an 1879 marriage to Ada Gravel Schaefer, 1858-1943. When his baseball career ended, he took a job at a racetrack as a book writer. Yes, he was a bookie. He died in Philadelphia in January 1922 of bronchopneumonia at age 70. He is interred in the family mausoleum at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Next time in the November 2021 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 32, Teen Angels. In 1900, a teenage girl named Mae Bibbinghouse volunteered to teach English to immigrants in Philadelphia's Chinatown. She got involved in the illegal opium trade and ended up dying from an overdose. It made headlines for weeks. 
In 1901, teenager Marion Ashmead went for a cruise on the Delaware River, which turned into a horror show when the boat caught fire and sank, killing 28 people, including Marion. Caleb Millen was a successful textile manufacturer whose factory on Washington Avenue rented its upper floors to a cigar maker. In 1902, a fire false alarm caused panic among its immigrant teenage workers who frantically ran for the exits, causing the deaths of nine girls whose average age was 15. A few other teenagers also make the cut with shorter stories. Sad stories, mishandling guns, falling off roofs, riding their bicycles home from school. Learn about these teen angels and more in the next episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It is within a very easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from April to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through March. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours again. We do expect you to follow the current CDC guidelines when you join us. And we still have pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at the laurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity, laurelhillcemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. If you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I have done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hotspots and Storied Plots, virtual tour number one and number two. We'll both give you an overview of many of the people buried there. And All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is on the illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. And podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast on YouTube. It's called The Birds and the Bees. Now, once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. 
I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together. Until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me, joe at joelex.net. I also invite you to listen to the radio show that I do for WPPM-FM in Philadelphia every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. East Coast time. I go back 60 years, I read you some news stories while also playing jazz that was recorded that week. You can stream it from phillycam.org slash listen or from my website, joelex.xyz. Stick around to hear the references that I use for this podcast. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Almost every reference for this episode was from contemporary newspapers. For Wes Fissler, I took information from 10 different articles. I do deeply regret that his tombstone does not identify him as the Icicle, which is one of the best baseball nicknames I have ever encountered. Lon Knight's information came from seven different newspaper articles. I am happy to do a dollar-to-dollar match to get him a marker, as long as it has the inscription through the first pitch in Major League Baseball history on 22 April 1876. Let me know if you're interested in that. Harry Luff's life story was well-researched by Bill Lamb for Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. Again, I cannot thank him enough for allowing me to use his in-depth story of this horrible human being. And no, I don't want to get him a memorial stone. Orator Schaefer was an oddity. From a 21st century perspective, he probably had Tourette's syndrome. Retrospective diagnosis is always difficult. I did use many online resources and newspaper articles to tell his story. And I am sorry that I ran out of time before telling of his brother, Zachary Taylor Schaefer, whose story expands far beyond baseball. There are at least 20 more Major League Baseball players to be covered at West Laurel Hills Cemetery. Joseph Berry, Frank Betcher, Henry Diddlebach, Walter Moser, Henry Schlichter, John Streaker, Thomas Turner, etc., etc. I have enough baseball players to do an annual baseball podcast for the next four or five years. Now that the weather has cooled down, please join us on a live tour at Laurel Hill or West Laurel Hill Cemetery. If you can't join us in person, look for the next episode of All Bones Considered in late October. And until next time we meet, stay safe, stay well.